episode of the Eye on Security podcast. As always, I'm your host, Luke McNamara, and joining me today, excited to have Mania SVP and CTO Charles Carmichael here. Charles, welcome to the episode. Thanks for having me here. So I wanted to have you on, not just because of your perspective on the very front lines of security, the threats that we're seeing impact organizations, but also because you have a front row seat into how these organizations are thinking about these threats from the business perspective, from the seat suite perspective. So I think that would be a very kind of interesting window into what we're seeing in the threat landscape today and how organizations are responding. And of course, if we're going to talk about the front lines of cybersecurity in 2020, you can't get away from ransomware. So maybe mm-hmm. we'll start there. What are we seeing this year when it comes to ransomware and maybe some of the trends that have been developing for a while, but especially what we're seeing in earnest this year? Yeah, so ransomware has really evolved over the past 12 months or so. So in December of last year, we saw a group called Maze. It's, a, it's an affiliate network of threat actors that operate under the Maze name that have really changed the game from an extortion perspective. And so what they do is when they break into organizations, they will steal materially sensitive data from organizations first, and then they'll deploy encryptors across the environment and start encrypting a bunch of systems. And so what they want to do is they want to really coerce victims into paying very high extortion demands, typically six figures, seven figures, and sometimes even eight figure demands. And they do that by asking for money, in exchange for not publicizing the data that they've stolen from the organization. They also ask for money to provide working decryptors to help organizations to get their data back. And so for a lot of victims, it feels like a one-two punch to them. They're getting extorted from two different angles. And and actually something that's pretty interesting about Maze is they're also um, charging for what they call a vulnerability assessment report or a remediation report to help the organizations understand how it was the threat actor actually got into uh, their environment. The reports aren't very good. Sometimes they're pretty generic. Um, every so often you get you know, some information that might be useful um, to the victim organization. But yeah, the maze crew is kind of, you know, from their perspective, they did a, a pretty effective job of coercing victims, which unfortunately is a pretty bad situation for the industry. A lot of other groups have taken notice because the, the maze folks have made a lot of money. And so you see a lot of other uh, threat actors at this point launching their own naming and shaming site like Maze did last year. So the NetWalker crew, the Conti crew, the Doppelpamer crew, lots of other crews have their own sites. And it's a way to amplify um, breaches. It's a way to coerce victims into paying. And unfortunately, it's uh, created an environment where a lot of folks that may not have paid in the past that were just exclusively dealing with ransomware, encrypting data and systems, are feeling compelled to pay now. Uh, because they don't want their data to get you know, publicly disclosed. So it seems like at least some of this activity is kind of compounding on top of each other. So groups that maybe were involved in other aspects of cybercrime that are now entering this space because they've seen, you know, in some cases, the very public successes of the other groups. What do you think is, you know, driving the increase in this? And, and is it really an increase in this? Or are we just more aware of some of these operations? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely think there's an increase today. And I say this because, look, there are a few reasons. One, I think a lot of threat actors recognize that one of the most effective ways to monetize their intrusions now is to both steal materially sensitive data from organizations and deploy ransomware encryptors. And if you think about how long an operation could take, 
I mean, an operation could take actually just a few days from the point in which they actually get access to an environment um, to the point where they gain enough privileges and access to systems in which they can steal data and then also deploy encryptors. And a lot of times we see that these victims end up paying $250,000 at a minimum for some of these intrusions. Sometimes, again, they're paying a million dollars or $5 million or so. If you think about the level of effort associated with the operation, again, it, it could only be a few days in which the intrusion starts to the point in which they, they actually get paid. And sometimes it takes a little bit longer, maybe a few weeks or so. But if you compare that to you know, some of the legacy intrusions and the way that other threat actors have monetized their acts, a lot of times in the past, we used to see threat actors going after credit card information. And if you think about how to monetize that, you've got to steal a lot of credit card data in order to be able to sell it in the markets, to be able to amass the same amount of money that you would with ransomware or with extortion. And you know, nowadays with organizations really shifting to end-to-end encryption or data tokenization, it becomes harder to amass a high volume of credit card information. Sure, you could still amass it through e-commerce sites and you could skim credit card data that way, but it's not as lucrative as it is to deploy ransomware and also to to steal data and extort organizations. And so I think a lot of threat actors, they realize that this is just a a very effective way for them to make money. And now we see more and more threat actors doing it. Is there on one level a sense where it, it, it should be expected that we see this sort of expansion of extortive behavior, given that we've seen over the last several years with the shift and even ransomware operations moving to more post compromise activity, well, there's more kind of, you know, they're moving laterally through the network, they're escalating privileges. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine in those sorts of operations, they're also coming across data that they realize this could have value, you know, for extortion. Mm-hmm. Do you see that as having shaped maybe some of this activity or the shift into the sort of naming and shaming that we're seeing? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as I think about the evolution of ransomware in the early days, you know, around the 2013, 2014 timeframe, when you were dealing with crypto locker and crypto wall and locking and variants like that. You know, back, back in those days, when people talked about ransomware, they were really talking about the encryptors that a lot of times either self-propagated or were distributed in a purely automated means. And, and so, for example, people got crypto locker infections because they received malicious emails that had malicious attachments and they'd open it up. And when they open up that attachment, code would run on their computer that would essentially encrypt everything on their systems and maybe even encrypt everything on the network shares that they were connected to. So for the most part, it's pretty automated. And when you think about the ransom demands, the authors behind CryptoLocker and CryptoWall, et cetera, they were looking to make money in bulk. So they wanted to shotgun as much ransomware out there as they possibly could. And, and ideally, they'd have a lot of different people that end up paying. And so they were asking for about $500. They, they didn't know who their victims were. So they didn't know if they were hitting a multi-billion dollar corporation or a grandmother that was trying to get the photos back of her grandchildren. And so that's why they would ask for such a small amount of money. Fast forward by a few years, you started to see a group called SamSam emerge. And what was different about them was that instead of shotgunning ransomware across the world, they would break into organizations. Usually they'd find some known vulnerability of breaking in, so a JBoss vulnerability or exposed RDP with easily guessable credentials. But they'd lock into the network, escalate privileges, move around laterally, find systems and data that were of interest to them or that were critical to the organization, and then deploy their encryptors on those systems. And and they started to ask for larger extortion demands. And so they were asking for about $15,000, $20,000 or so. 
And they were one of the first groups that you know, kind of provided, it sounds weird to say this, but they provided pretty good customer support in that if their ransomware decryptors didn't work, and they didn't work all the time, customers would complain or victims would complain to threat actors and they'd say, hey, we're really sorry. We'll look at our developers on it right away and we'll fix it. And lo and behold, they fixed it and provided updated working versions of the decryptors. And a lot of other groups, they took note of that. And they realized you could ask for more money when you know who the victims are. And again, that's the difference between the Locky folks and the crypto lockers, because they didn't know who they were hitting versus the Samsung crew. And later on, the Locker Goga folks, the Megacortex folks, the Riot folks, Netwalkers, et cetera. They know which network they're in. And they definitely do a little bit of research to try to figure out what is the revenue of the organization? What is their willingness to pay? And, and there's certainly a perception by a lot of these actors that if a company has hundreds of millions in revenue or billions in revenue, they're probably more susceptible to pay large ransom demands because maybe they have cybersecurity insurance that helps them with the payments or you know, there could be any number of reasons. In terms of the data theft, quite frankly, I don't actually think many of these threat actors actually have enough business acumen to understand the real value of the data that they find and that they steal. And I still think that a lot of these actors, they look for data that they perceive to be high value but may not necessarily be high value. So they'll look for directories that say finance or HR or contracts, or, or there may be the word confidential in it. And they may grab lots of directories or lots of files that have these keywords in it. And they pray that they're stealing something that's uh, valuable to the victim organization. And I've seen many times where the victim organization looks at the data that was stolen and they say, hey, this is actually not that material to us. It's not sensitive. Yes, it has the word confidential sometimes, but just because it has the word confidential on it, a lot of documents have the word confidential on it because that's sometimes just the standard template that they use. And, and I've actually had some clients say, what the threat actor has stolen and what they've shown us is not valuable. But what they don't realize is they actually do have some valuable data. They didn't show it to us, but we know they have it, but they don't realize that it's valuable or they could have looked at this other server that they had access to, and they could have taken this directory, and that would have been much more you know, sensitive and much more valuable to us, and we probably would have paid. And so, again, I don't know that the threat actors truly have an understanding of what they're stealing. I think they just, again, they look for certain keywords, and they pull it out of an environment as best as they can. And to them, they feel like if they've stolen a gig of data or a few hundred gigs of data or a terabyte of data, to them, the volume of data that they steal is more valuable than the contents of the data that they're seeing. So with that, and moving over to the organizational response side of this, and as I alluded to at the beginning, you're someone who is working with not just the security teams involved kind of at a tactical and operational level with dealing with these events, but you're interacting with the board, with the C-suite. How are you seeing how they are thinking about this particular challenge that often represents to them continuity of operations problems, mm -hmm. increasingly with the, the leakage of data, brand reputation problems. How are you seeing them respond to this? And maybe in some ways where it differs with other types of you know, criminally motivated data breaches or IP theft from a nation state actor? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So look, I, I think over the years, business leadership and executive leadership has become much more aware of cybersecurity and just general risk management principles. And, and so they are thinking about cybersecurity as one of the risk management areas that they need to focus on. They hear about the headlines all the time. They, they know people at other organizations that have been impacted. And so there's definitely much more awareness in the industry today from a business perspective. 
but it's never really real to an organization until it's actually real to them. And so what I find is a lot of times when, when organizations deal with a security incident, you know, to a security person, we may sometimes look at a maybe a non-sophisticated type of an event as maybe a, a, not as big of a deal, but if it becomes a situation where maybe mainstream media or customers hear about it, the problem becomes amplified to a level where it's perceived to be a pretty big deal to, to business leadership. On the flip side, you know, sometimes we, you know, as security professionals, we see something that might be a, a very sophisticated attack, maybe a, a very damaging incident to the organization. Maybe that's a state-sponsored incident or something like that. But the victim organization doesn't necessarily perceive it to be a very high risk to them. Um, again, there's a lot of different variables that come into play here. And, and I actually you know, distinctly remember having a conversation with, with an organization about a nation state that we believe was actively stealing um, intellectual property from that organization. And while that organization, that they cared about it and they you know, try to respond to it, there's a, a much different level of response by that organization a few years later when they actually got hit with the ransomware incident. And so the reason why it felt different is because in that ransomware incident, the organization didn't have the ability to send emails to, to employees or to, to business partners, didn't have the ability to transact with their business partners. The executives at the organization just couldn't do their work. And, and when, when you're in a situation where you work at a company, but you can't write emails to people and you can't conduct business operations and you can't produce revenue, you find religion and you find it quickly and, and you do a lot of things that you may not have otherwise done. And so, now, whereas in the, in the first situation, I would have thought that it would have been a pretty significant incident that you know, the organization was losing information to another government that was less relevant to that organization than the ransomware incident was a few years later. So I'll, I'll tell you, security is definitely becoming much more visible at the board level, at the executive level, but it's not really real to a company until it's real. Yeah, I think that's a, a great story that showcases sometimes the things that we think organizations should care about differ, not just in the organization itself, but at the, the level and part of the business uh, that they are in. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this about ransomware, and I, I think it's probably the, the most difficult in this discussion around uh, ransomware, but what turns the tide of this? As I was kind of preparing for this episode, I was reminded of the activity we saw back in, I think it was 2015 and 2016, from groups like DD4BC and Armada Collective, mm -hmm. uh, groups that were carrying out DDoS attacks on financial services, e-commerce platforms, for extortive purposes. And certainly, we've, I think, seen waves where DDoS as an extortion tool or, or just as a, a threat tool, period, has kind of come through waves. And as security controls for that to mitigate that particular type of threat have gotten better, it doesn't seem to be as much the threat that it used to be for a lot mm -hmm. of organizations. Although, as we've recently seen in, in New Zealand, certainly can still be a threat. Given the fact that, you know, there's evidence at least some of or most of these groups are operating in regions where law enforcement cooperation may be a bit difficult. And in comparing to other types of threat activity, law enforcement operations where we've had arrests has seemed to only had a minimal impact. Mm -hmm. What turns the tide of this? What changes with this threat being, you know, stopping this threat from increasing in terms of impact? Yeah, you know, it's, I, I wish I had a great answer here. I think there could be a few things that may curb 
uh, these types of destructive and disruptive attacks. And, and let me give you a few examples. So we, we talked a bit about the SAMSAM crew from a few years ago. Well, in, in 2018, the Department of Justice had indicted two individuals out of Iran that were purportedly behind the SAMSAM ransomware operation. And there possibly were other people that were involved in that operation. But since the indictment, we have not seen a single SAMSAM ransomware incident beyond that point. And so there's a lot of speculation what actually caused the halting of, of intrusion operations by the SAMSAM crew. And you know, I, I won't go into those details, but I think arrests will certainly help if you are able to identify some of the criminals that are behind these operations. Now, the problem becomes a lot of these folks operate in countries in which we have no extradition laws with the United States or other countries that may you know, seek legal recourse. What you could rely on is when you know, people come into a lot of money, and so a lot of ransomware operators, they, they tend to have a lot of money or a fair amount of money. They want to do something with it. And there's only so many good things you could buy in the home country that they operate in. So a lot of these folks, they, they have the inkling or the desire to travel, and they hope that law enforcement and, and other intelligence agencies don't know who they are. And so every so often you see them, they'll travel to certain countries, and they'll get picked up when they travel to those countries. The problem is, I think uh, there's just so many of those operators right now that operate in Eastern European countries that don't have any real recourse that they could continue to operate with a sense of impunity. And we do expect that they'll continue. I, I wish I had a great answer. I wish we could solve this. I do worry that we'll probably see more of this activity until things get a little bit better. But I do hope that the you know, future indictments and future arrests help curb this activity. So shifting gears a little bit, looking at the rest of the threat landscape, you know, on the victim side or, or what we're seeing on the front lines, any notable changes in TTPs or tooling that we've seen this year or, or seen continue? I, I think one of the more interesting ones that we've seen for some years, and I think it's still continuing, is the usage of publicly available malware, mm-hmm. on the shelf tools, red teamer tools, particularly in kind of early stages of, of operations even being used by some of the more advanced and well-resourced groups that we track. We're continuing to see that sort of activity, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think the public offensive security tools, it it enables new threat actors to enter the game. They can leverage a lot of the tools that are available. Yeah, obviously, legitimate security professionals could also leverage the tools. And so it it definitely does make it a little bit easier for uh, criminals and for security testers to be able to leverage it out there. But, but I also think that there is an, an element of some of the more advanced groups tend to want to use and stick to only using publicly available tools or commercially available tools. Because what that does is it helps mask who the identity of the threat actors actually are. And so there's times when we investigate APT28 intrusion. So APT28 is a, a, a group based out of Russia that uh, conducts a number of, of high-profile intrusions. And, and there, there are cases and situations where we've seen APT28 only use publicly available tooling. And I uh, distinctly remember conducting an incident response engagement at an organization that we believed was impacted by APT28. But when we looked at the tooling that was used, we only saw the use of publicly available tools like SQL Map and, and, and a few other things. Uh, the infrastructure that was used was only Tor exit nodes. And so if you just look at the, the technical tooling and the infrastructure, you really couldn't tell who, who was actually behind the intrusion. 
And then to actually even further complicate things, one of the Russian personas that was used for several years was Anonymous Poland. And I distinctly remember seeing a video of a video on YouTube of somebody from Anonymous Poland running SQL map against a, a website. And you know, some of the folks on the incident response team that was helping this organization saw that and said, hey, there's no way this is APT28. We see Anonymous Poland running the scan. And you know, what we're seeing in this YouTube video matches exactly what we're actually seeing in the logs. And you know, to me, it actually felt like classic Russian disinformation. They wanted to muddy the water for us. They wanted to confuse us. They wanted to make it look like it was somebody else, a group of unsophisticated criminals that, uh, or unsophisticated kids that were conducting the intrusion. And they threw a number of false flags out there. So we were able to connect the dots and determine with a high level of confidence that we were dealing with, with APT28 because of you know, some of the other connections that we were able to make from this intrusion and other intrusion sets. But it's just, it's just interesting to see the, the usage of publicly available tools as part of some of the intrusions that we respond to. I think we're going to continue to see more of it. And do you think organizations are more aware now? I mean, as you noted, this is not something that's incredibly new, at least been going on for the last several years. Do you think organizations are now being more cognizant about that so that if they are you know, concerned with being targeted by you know, any number of these groups that are using these tools, that their consideration of tools like PowerShell Empire, Cobalt Strike, Beacon, some of these frameworks and tools that are being utilized, that they're kind of treating those as seriously as, you know, something that may be boutique and custom to one group? Yeah, I don't think so. I think maybe the more publicly available tool, you know, the more publicly available a tool is, maybe the, the less organizations in general think the impact of like, the identification of that is in their network. And so, you know, if, if a tool is commonly used, I think, in generally speaking, a lot of companies may feel like, hey, that's a pen tester that's conducting an attack or a simulated attack against my environment, or maybe that's an unsophisticated criminal. So I think, generally speaking, that might be the case now. Obviously, there's lots of folks that are in the know, and they recognize that a lot of advanced attackers or more impactful attackers use commercially available or publicly available attack frameworks, like the Cobalt Strikes of the world and you know, Metasploits and other things like that. So. I guess it kind of just depends on the maturity of the organization. But there's a definitely a fair number of people that feel like maybe the more public something is, the less sophisticated it actually is. Yeah, that's a good point. Moving on to talk about cybersecurity in the, the era of the pandemic and COVID-19, how have you seen customers adapt to carrying out security? And are there specific challenges that you're seeing with organizations that are now not just having remote workforces, but part of that being remote security workforces. I guess I'm thinking in particular, not to go back to, to ransomware, but you know some of the, the stats that came out last year, I think in M-Trends, about 75% of ransomware being deployed in off hours, either in the weekends or after kind of peak workday. And you can imagine the sort of impact now with folks working strange hours with you know mm-hmm. having kids and the family having to adjust to that. Are we seeing any sort of impact with organizations that we're working with to help prevent some of these yeah. things? Yeah, so you know, I'll tell you that probably the first major question or concern that arose during the work from home mandate of COVID was many organizations out there really struggled with VPN capacity. All of a sudden, the entire workforce had to remotely connect into a network and you found lots of organizations that just simply didn't have the capacity and the bandwidth or the licenses to be able to support that many people concurrently 
accessing um, their VPN. And so what we found were a lot of organizations reaching out to us, asking us, what's the risk, the real risk of enabling split tunneling on their VPN infrastructure? Because a lot of people working from home, you know, in addition to working, they want to stream music or they want to stream television shows or sports. And, and many organizations, VPNs just couldn't handle the capacity and they wanted to be able to route the work traffic through the VPN, but other traffic, you know, social media traffic or, or other kinds of media traffic directly out of the employee's internet connection. So that was the first challenge. And as you could imagine, if you have split tunneling enabled, then there's a really good chance that you're not actually seeing all the network traffic that's going out of the, the system. And you're probably going to miss malicious traffic that could be exiting a system. And so when people work from home, they tend to use their computers differently than when they work at the office. And so you know, working from home, people tend to install software that maybe they wouldn't otherwise install if they were at the office. They might visit websites that they maybe wouldn't otherwise visit if they were in the office. And so it obviously increases the likelihood that you know, individuals may get that malware infections or uh, other types of unwanted software on their computers that organizations just simply can't monitor for and, and, and control. So, so that, that's become a challenge. Another challenge that we noticed is in, in other parts of the world, we found that a, a number of employees just didn't have corporate-issued laptops. And so they ended up needing to use personal laptops or personal desktops to be able to access the uh, company network. And that's obviously a problem because if you're using a shared device, you, know, you may have family members that might install games or other things on the computer that might introduce you know, uh, other security risks and concerns on, on the device itself. But, so there were definitely a lot of concerns that our companies had to understand and address when they moved to a COVID world. And from a response perspective, you know, one of the challenges that we have is that sometimes the laptops that people use never actually connect to the corporate network. And so for us to be able to do an investigation of somebody's asset, it may be difficult for our clients to push out you know, forensic software to computers or to, you know, for them to be able to acquire data that they need from those machines because those computers may never connect to the VPN. They may never connect to a, a, a server in which the, uh, the organization can push out patches. So it, it, it can add some complexity and some challenges. But you know, from, from our perspective, at least from an IR perspective, because we have a lot of tooling that allows us to do our incident response work remotely, we haven't had much of an impact at Mandiant. So we have been able to do very large-scale enterprise-wide incident response engagements 100% virtually by leveraging software to remotely acquire data from systems. And then we have historically wanted to go on site to see our clients, to meet with them face-to-face, to exchange information with them, to whiteboard things with them. And in the meantime, we've just had to make use of the you know, the collaboration tools that are available to us, to video chat with each other, to share documents, to, to live edit things. And we found that transition for us wasn't actually hard at all. And I know everyone has different perspectives on remote working, both at the organizational level and also the individual. Do you foresee any of the sort of changes that we've made to maybe how we do business with an incident response and you know going on, on customer sites? Do you foresee any of these sort of changes sticking after the pandemic? You know, it's probable that some of the changes that we've made now will, will continue to exist. I do expect that a number of folks will end up working from home, at least more so than they had in the past. And, and you know, I, I've still got a little bit of an old school mentality. I prefer to have people in the office because I think there's just so much learning and collaboration that happens when people are face to face with each other. And, and sometimes you just hear things by physically being around them that you may not be able to hear 
through the, the virtualization platforms that we have available to us. So I personally plan to come back to the office when things are safe. I'd love for the team to come back to the office, but it's probably going to look and feel different than it had in the past. We probably won't have the same in-office attendance that we used to have, but we'd like to get back to the point where people come in. I'd also like to hop on a plane again and start to see my clients face-to-face and go out to lunch with them, go out to dinners. And I really hope that we get back to a situation where that you know becomes the norm, where we can see people face-to-face and to share experiences with them. But I do wonder just you know for the simple things like, shaking people's hand. Will, will people shake hands in 2021 and 2022 and beyond? Or will we be doing fist bumps or uh, elbow bumps? I, I don't know how, how that's going to change, but it's definitely going to change the way that we, we operate moving forward. And some of these things that we've become accustomed to in the past several months, we'll probably stick with it for, you know, for quite a while. Yeah, I definitely do not miss the rush hour traffic in the DC area, but you're right. There's a lot from a collaboration standpoint that you just get by being in the office and fortuitously bumping into someone who's working on something. Yeah, no doubt. As kind of wrapping this up, and, and as we're sitting here recording this in early September, so pre M Trends report, although the work on collating all that data will be starting soon, any predictions you want to leave us with or things that we should be watching develop as trends? maybe a continuation of something or, or the emergence of something? Yeah. You know, the, the way I typically predict trends or predict, you know, what might happen in the future is I tend to look back in time and try to figure out what were, what were the trends that we observed over the past 12 to 24 months. And, and I expect we're just going to see more of that. So I, I expect to see more disruptive attacks. I expect to see more extortion. I expect to see more threat actors making a lot of money. In the process. I do expect to see a resurgence in state-sponsored threat actor activity. We're probably going to continue to see the big countries continuing to uh, engage in, in their offensive operations. Outside of cyber, I expect to see an increase in human adversaries stealing information from organizations. So the insider threat is going to, I, I believe, will be much more noticed in 2021 and beyond. And I think we've actually started seeing a fair volume of insider activity for the past few years. You know, there are a number of situations where, as an example, Chinese nationals have stolen intellectual property from research organizations, healthcare organizations, oil and gas companies, other you know, high-tech organizations. And I do believe that we're going to see more of that. Uh, we've also seen insiders conduct criminal operations and steal data from their organizations and reach back out to their CEOs and to their boards and to pretend to be external hackers that hacked into the company that are asking for $500,000 or a million dollars to, to not publish the data that they've stolen. And so I think a lot of this malicious insider activities actually occurred for quite some time. I just think it's hard to identify and it's hard to prove malicious intent. But I think in time, we'll probably end up seeing more of it. And maybe it's not because more of it's happening, but it's just because we're keeping a closer eye on it and we're detecting it more than we had in the past. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see if the continued work from home situations of a lot of organizations exacerbates some of that activity as well. Yeah, it certainly could. Well, Charles, thank you for your time and your insights here. We'll definitely have to have you back on at some point in the future. And maybe you can talk about how the the threats have changed since then. and point to all the things that you noted here and, and got right. Awesome. Good deal. Well, thanks for inviting me, Luke. Take care, Charles. Excellent.